Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for February 2018. I am writer, hyphen awards season agnostic Lee Zachariah and with me as always is... Hello, I'm writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, enthusiastic mushroom chef, Rochelle Semenovich. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be joined by a very special guest a little later in the show. But before we are joined by said guest, or unsaid guest, because I didn't actually say who it was, let's leave it as a surprise, even though it's written in the description of the podcast you are currently listening to. This has gone way off the rails. I need to get it back. <laughs> let's talk about some films we've seen this month. Rochelle, what have you seen this February? I've seen and I've loved Phantom Thread. Daniel Day-Lewis stars as Reynolds Woodcock, a famous and fastidious dress designer to the rich and titled ladies of 1950s London. A confirmed bachelor who lives in his stylish townhouse with his tart and wily sister Cyril, played by Leslie Manville. She helps him run the business and also disposes of his muses once he tires of them. But when Reynolds meets Alma, Vicky Creeps, a clumsy young waitress in a seaside cafe, little does he realise he's finally met his match. A sly romance and a dark comedy about creativity and the battle of wills that is marriage, Phantom Thread is the eighth film by Paul Thomas Anderson and his second collaboration with Day Lewis after There Will Be Blood. Lee, were you as ravished and impressed by Phantom Thread as I was? Uh, well, I don't know how was you were, so uh, <laughs> but I, I suspect I was. I, I bloody loved it. Uh, I mean, I love every single one of his films, but uh, yeah, no, Phantom Thread was, was something special. I, I really adored it. It's just beautiful to look at, um, mm. apart from everything else. It's just the cinematography, the costumes, the really lush score by Johnny Greenwood. Mm. Um, it's just a film to really kind of lose yourself in. But I think it's the performances by Day-Lewis and Creeps that really, mm. you know, take this to another level. It's just sly and clever and unexpected. And it's got a lot of callbacks to Hitchcock's dangerous marriage dramas like Rebecca and Suspicion. Yeah, yeah. And so it's kind of got that mix of intrigue and mystery and thrill. But it is a love story, isn't it? It is. I mean, we, we come in. PTA very very early on in the life mm. of this podcast and and he's it's interesting because I think that was right after was it There Will Be Blood was his most recent film at the time and since then he's made so many different types of films that I almost feel he's due for a re- reassessment like he feels like a very apologetic artist you know if you see any interview with Paul Thomas Anderson he's always quick to talk about his love of broad comedy you know he, I love Adam Sandler films like every interview yeah. he always talks about loving broad comedy and I think I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I get the impression he's slightly embarrassed at being such a high-proud filmmaker. But the fact that he keeps making these films is is pretty interesting. Like, he can't break free of this type of film that he's interested in. But it's the anti-highbrow artist film, you know. Highbrow artists make, make films and write books about how being an artist is so important, the process is so important. And this is such a self-effacing self-portrait it's a dismantling of his own mythos i think there's more to life than being consumed by your own process other people can make great art as well without destroying the lives of everyone around them yeah it's really making fun of this um of this fashion designer dress designer reynolds woodcock i mean Mm. even the name sounds like a bit of a joke it's Um, a remake of mr woodcock isn't it the uh, (laughs) billy bob thornton company He takes himself so seriously and makes life hell for everybody around him. Mm. And he's supposed to be making these beautiful dresses, which 
are beautiful and yet they're never quite as beautiful as they probably should be or mm. need to be. And so you see that for his supposed art, everybody else is working over time, destroying themselves. Yeah. And in the end, he's brought down a notch or two by love and maybe brought to grow up because in a lot of ways he's like a spoiled child. And I mean, watching Day-Lewis behave as this bratty, pernickety older man to this younger woman who who's supposedly powerless um, but really isn't Mm. it's just a delight yeah it is and i mean i saw this right after wonder wheel uh and both films feature women destroying men out of spite but i think this was a lot savvier a lot more self-aware i would say yeah i mean there's a power struggle between them but there's also like it's not straightforward no it's not say that (laughs) absolutely not like i don't think it's an apology for men like i think it's uh I, th- I think PTA has some self-loathing as an artist, and uh, that's great because uh, it makes for really interesting films. <laughs> yeah. We, we benefit from that. Uh, so our next film is uh, Black Panther, uh, which is the latest Marvel film reintroducing the Wakandan prince-turned-king T'Challa, who was introduced in 2016's Captain America Civil War. Like all of his ancestors, uh, T'Challa is the protector of the mysterious African nation of Wakanda, one that projects an image of poverty to the outside world, but is actually the most technologically advanced nation on Earth. T'Challa's ascendancy to the throne is threatened in this film by the appearance of a long-lost cousin, relatably named Eric Killmonger, who grew up in the US and is after a lot of things, including revenge for the death of his father. T'Challa must fight off this threat, save his nation, but also question the wisdom of Wakanda's policy of isolationism. Rochelle, you've been forced to watch way more superhero movies than you normally would since joining me as co-host <laughs> on this show. Was this a breath of fresh air or more of the same? Both. Okay. I know that's trying to have it always. I was thinking before I went into this film, oh, God, Lee, I'm going to have to put my foot down and just say, (laughs) no, you do the superhero films on your own. But after seeing this, I thought, well, as a film critic, I really had to see this because it is a game changer, Mm. you know, with it's almost all black cast, um, black director, score by a black artist, black cinematographer. Mm. You know, this... This is a really big deal in terms of representation. And yet it is another stupid superhero movie with a lot of really drawn-out fights and, you know, battles in the sky and crazy costumes and kind of dumb jokes. And I don't know. It's, it, it, it is a breath of fresh air, though. The, mm. the production design, the uh, Afrofuturistic set, which is... Afrofuturism is a word I've had to learn in talk, talking about this film because apparently it's a it's a thing mm. that existed. And the politics of the film, the more you look at it, are actually quite radical. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I, I, I was quite... The thing that intrigued me most about this film, because there's so much going on, the thing I really loved about it was it was based around the idea of what should a nation do? You mm. know, we've had stories about billionaires, we've had stories about angsty teenagers, so this was new, like someone mm. in control of the whole country. And the fact that the villain is sort of right about the fact that you have to engage with the world. Like, he's coming from a point of view, which is, I think, the correct one. It's just that his methods were incorrect, and because the ends never justifies the means, there's not a huge moral problem there with him being the villain. Yeah. And so it's the hero who's forced to change and to sort of see things from a different perspective. And I found, I thought that was such a clever angle, rather than him being right from the beginning. Yeah. 
and having to overcome adversity. It's no, he actually has to change his attitude. So yeah, I, I, I found that really fascinating. And look, I, the conversation about the, uh, its importance in, in pop culture is an important one. Um, but I think people like fans and critics alike tend to separate that from the quality of the film. And I don't think it is separate because what I want to see in a film is something I haven't seen before. And often that's narrative. Sometimes it's set pieces and the production values. But it's also culture. You know, I have not seen an all-black superhero cast in a film of this scale mm. telling a story like this in a part of the world we never see on screen. Yeah, we've never seen anything like this on this scale. The newness of it drew me in and uh, really excited me. It's really interesting the way, uh, you know, most of the black characters here speak with kind of African-accented mm. English, you know, which is a choice they might not have chosen to to go with yeah no it's it's really interesting I guess one of the problems I had with it was and perhaps this is even a strength the villain Killmonger played by Michael B Jordan um, who's also worked with the director Ryan Coogler in Fruitvale Station and Creed he's just so buff he's handsome as hell he's so charismatic and the points he makes are so good mm. that I think he completely overshines Black Panther himself in mm. fact I can't even remember what Black Panther looks like because I was so taken by his adversary. Yeah. Yeah, who does make some really interesting points about, you know, wealth and how it should be shared and whether it's okay to arm revolutionaries, you know, mm. in the cause of justice. I don't know. I see, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting moral quandary at the mm. heart of it. It's not just, you know, 10 years ago, all the, all the superhero films we'd see would be basically fight scenes. And now, I think, in because there are so many of them, they're forced to differentiate themselves. You know, I don't agree that they're that they're all basically the same films because I think they're struggling to not struggling but striving to say, wait, how how does this separate itself from all the others? And so we suddenly get all these stories that we haven't seen on screen before. They've probably been in the comics. I'm not a comics reader. I don't know. But I'm seeing things in these films I've never seen before. It's this small African country that has to decide whether it should intervene in, you know, America's affairs yeah. to save America, yeah. which is the most 2018 idea I have seen on screen yet. <laughs> and also let's not ignore the fact that there are some wonderful female characters in this mm. film. The women get to really do something, say something, be someone. And I don't know if you can really say that for most superhero films, but the women here were amazing and smart and fierce. Mm. You know, they're fighters, they're warriors, they're engineers making the most extraordinary advances in technology. So, yeah, I think if you have to see a superhero film, this is probably one, you know, that you're not going to feel too sullied by seeing. Yeah. And you're going to have some fun along the way. Unlike the next five, I'll ask you to watch this year. <laughs> <laughs> Our next film is Greta Gerwig's directorial debut, Lady Bird, a closely observed coming-of-age comedy set in 2003 and inspired by her own adolescence. Saoirse Ronan plays Christine, a spotty 17-year-old Catholic schoolgirl who insists on being called Lady Bird. She dreams of escaping suburban Sacramento and attending an expensive East Coast college, but the family's struggling financially. Her kind-hearted computer programmer Dad, played by playwright Tracy Letts, is unemployed and her exasperated, overworked mother, Laurie Metcalf, has little patience for Lady Bird's indulgences. Lee, did this tale of teen angst and big city dreams ring any bells for you? Oh, it did. As I was uh, watching this film, remembering my time as a young uh, Catholic 
schoolgirl. Uh, no, that's actually, I mean, that's, that's the power of film, isn't it? You know, you empathise so much with the characters, you think, this is speaking right to me. This is nothing like my experiences in life. But uh, I adored it. I think she's tapped into something really interesting. I think there's something about the coming-of-age film as a debut. I was thinking a lot about Rushmore, which isn't technically Wes Anderson's debut, but sort of was his calling card. Mm. And how that was a precocious character in a precocious world. And this is a precocious character in a real world. Mm. I just love that. I think Saoirse Ronan is the perfect lead and nails every moment, particularly the comedy, but the drama as well. Yeah. I mean, as an actress and writer, Gerwig's been such an indie darling. Mm. Um, She's been such a poster girl for that kind of awkward millennial middle youth type of character and yet she's chosen to stay behind the camera Mm. on this film as the writer and director and I think that's probably a really smart move because it's putting the emphasis on what she can do creatively rather than what she looks like even Mm. she's such a gifted comic actress yeah she is but so often that scene is kind of artless yeah or or natural I think we often don't see how much talent goes into that Mm. but you know seeing what she can do here just creating beautiful moments that build in dramatic intensity so that, you know, the opening of a letter Mm. feels just as momentous as as a bomb dropping, you know? She just really creates scenes that have such a lot of weight to them. I think she does cameo as a real estate agent in a split second. I I could be wrong, but there's one second I was like, that's that's Gerwig, I'm sure. But, but yeah, I mean, she's been... um, like in a bunch of Noah Baumbach films, her, her yeah. partner and I get and it, like she's Swanberg's the, films as Swanberg, well. Swanberg, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but particular, like the arc of Baumbach's films, I think that when she sort of became star and then muse and then co-writer, I think his films improved a lot yeah. during that period. Where and so I'm I'm not surprised that when she adds director to her roster, that it turns out this well. Like I think it was it's been obvious for a few years that she's had the talent there. It's got five nominations for um, Academy Awards, including director, original screenplay. Yeah, yeah it's, she's the first female director to be nominated for an, an Academy Award in eight years. Wow. Since Ka- um, Catherine Bigelow. And the fifth female director ever to yeah. be nominated in Academy history. Like, God, what are we doing that? We're still so far behind, yeah. you know, yeah. in terms of recognition of women directors and artists. So, yeah, good luck to Greta. I agree. <laughs> well, speaking of directorial debuts, but not women having directorial <laughs> debuts, uh, Molly's Game is the directorial debut of Aaron Sorkin, the writer behind A Few Good Men, The West Wing, and The Social Network, who is either brilliant or a hack, depending on your own correctness. Uh, based on the <laughs> memoir of the same name by Molly Bloom, it follows a world-class skier who suffers an injury and has to find something else to do with her life. She ends up running a high-stakes poker game that's attended by movie stars and royalty and is soon under threat from both the FBI and the Mafia. But she won't give up names because Molly Bloom, like all Aaron Sorkin characters, does not do that. Rochelle, did you find the film's mise-en-scene to reflect the narrative device of... Actually, scratch that. Rochelle, did you see the film? (laughs) I I didn't get a chance to see this, um, so convince me as to whether I should or not, given that I, I'm not the biggest Aaron Sorkin fan and I don't really like The West Wing, 
But I didn't mind um, The Social Network and Steve Jobs. So how does it compare Hmm. to those films? Well, I I got more Social Network Steve Jobs vibes from this than West Wing. Okay. Um, I think it's... I feel like he's... Because, I mean, he's been collaborating with Thomas Schlammy, who did West Wing and Sports Night with, for so many years. I thought I'd see a lot of Schlammy in him. But I feel like there's a frenetic energy from... Fincher and Boyle Mm. who directed those other two films that really rubs off on him I feel like he's really got something to prove and so there's this yeah real sort of kinetic energy Mm. in the beginning and 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 throughout the film weirdly I like I love this film I do feel like the story isn't as strong as it could be and I don't think that's the fault of the writer or the director but of the collaboration Mm. Uh, which sounds like a clever thing you write to say in a podcast that doesn't mean anything, but I do actually believe this. Like, look at The Social Network or Steve Jobs for how two different visions can create something unique. Mm -hmm. And I think there's sort of... Like, he worked really well with both of those directors, and there was a bit of friction in those films, and I think friction in here would have propelled it into something great, a director with a different vision on how to interpret that, you know, two different voices sort of playing off each other. But it is very, very good. There's no denying that Bloom's story is an extraordinary one. I think she's a fascinating person. I got some real tear-jerking moments. Like, really? Yeah, there's one scene in particular where, um, you know, Kevin Costner plays her father and, you know, he's got sort of an emotional... Like, Aaron Sorkin is the father of the daughter and you can tell that comes from somewhere deep within him that sort of maybe comes deeper than anything else I've seen him write before. And, yeah, Chastain and Idris Elba make a great pair. They bounce off each other so well. It's such a joy watching them together. So, yeah, no, I would recommend it. In terms of um, Jessica Chastain's performance, I just watched the trailer for this. Does it remind you at all of um, Miss Sloane? Did you see that? I didn't see it, but I want to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she plays very sort of high-powered, high-stakes power women, and Mm. she seems to do that really well and bring a sort of interesting... Um, dimension to that yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'd be interested to see it also anything with Idris Elba you know I mm. generally give a little bit of time to okay well I may give it a go when it comes to uh, Netflix yeah. <laughs> okay who wrote your favourite film was it written by two people sitting in a room together or did one person write it and another change it Did someone whose name you never saw do a polish that elevated it into something special? Did someone else do a previous draft of a film that would have been much better than the one that you loved? We know when an actor plays a part, we know when a director makes a film, but screenwriting is an opaque process, perhaps the least straightforward creative role in cinema, at least to those of us on the outside. One person who, as far as I can tell, has been on every single side of the screenwriting rhombic polyhedron is our guest, Andrew Kevin Walker. Andrew, welcome. Hey, thank you. Thank you for being with us. Um, Would you say that was a fair description of your job? And feel free to berate me if I got it completely wrong. I think it was fair. I mean, I don't know if I was listening to every nuance of it, but I've personally done original scripts. I have tons of original scripts piled up that will never get made, and I've done some rewriting. So, yeah, and I think every screenwriter kind of experiences all those aspects. When someone asks you what you've written, what do you lead with? I mean, you know, if I'm sitting in the back of an Uber and somebody, that conversation happens, I I say truthfully, especially because, you know, 
they're much younger than I. Well, it's a movie from a long time ago called Seven, you know, and if they vaguely have heard of it or are not sure, I say, you know, with Brad Pitt in it. <laughs> but Seven is the one that most people might have seen, and there obviously are tons and tons of people who've never seen it. So when, uh, when I glance at your IMDb, it looks like you've written six or seven films over 20 years, which probably is like 5% of the story. What, what does that page not tell people? Well, I'm not sure what's on there, although I've, I've heard of things like recently someone was saying, oh, you're working on this. And I was like, no, <laughs> um, I taught and I forget what it was, but it was something I'd maybe talked to somebody about a long time ago. Yeah, I'm sure that it has on there seven Sleepy Hollow, eight millimeter, which I've never seen. The Wolfman, which I've never seen. I hope it has on there the BMW shorts, which were which were directed by Juan Car Wai and. Uh, John Frankenheimer. And then the list of movies that I've written that'll never get made, which is just a fact of screenwriting life, you know, does go on and on. There's Of Human Bondage. I did an adaptation of that Somerset Mom novel, which I was incredibly honored to be able to do. I did a, you know, forever ago, a Batman versus Superman. I did a first draft of the X-Men. I mean, none of these movies that eventually got made had anything to do with the draft that I wrote, you know, reincarnation of Peter Proud, which I wrote for Fincher, you know, I hope someday it might get resurrected. No pun intended or pun intended. I did a, a version for Mike DeLuca of uh, Falling Angel, the book upon which um, Angel Heart is based. Um, you know, I did a girl who played with fire for David Fincher. I did 20,000 leagues under the sea and both of these are rewrites, but 20,000 leagues under the sea for Fincher and on and on, you know, original stuff, old man, Johnson, red, white, black, and blue for Paramount, you know, which was the kind of the ultimate seventies cop movie. So there are all these kind of dead projects in my wake. And there are a few you kind of hope will get made eventually. And there's a few like psycho killer and, uh, one called Machinery of Night, where I optioned the rights to Allen Ginsberg's poem, Howl, that we're still trying really actively to get made. And then there's a few that I'm working on now that I'm not allowed to talk about. And that's not even mentioning, you know, kind of the rewrites, which I know you wanted to talk about a little bit. But the process of credit and arbitration is incredibly complicated. So, yes, like there are movies that have me on them, like Sleepy Hollow as a sole credit and 8mm, which were rewritten by others. And then there are other ones that my name's not on that I did make some contribution to. When you mention the films that your name is on but you haven't seen, is is part of avoiding them the fact that you don't feel it's necessarily your work on screen and you don't want to sort of engage in that? It might be too uncomfortable to see something changed so much? That was specifically the case with 8mm, for sure, because I was close enough to it to know what became of the script. And it would have just been... It, it's just kind of really depressing to see it get so drastically altered with the Wolfman, which I always pronounce W O O F man, I think because of my Pennsylvania accent or what remains of it. The Wolfman kind of the same. I mean, I had really high hopes. I was very proud of that script with some of these ones that you work on that, you know, that only a handful of people will have ever in your entire life read what you intended. It's nice to have andrewkevinwalker.com where I can throw up the original draft of eight millimeters there. And I can't do that with the Wolfman because it's Universal's property. But there are some scripts where you can kind of just for the few handful of screenwriting nerds out there 
throw them up online so that people can read the original draft if they have any interest. I think the Wolfman script and even my first draft of X-Men and Red, White, Black, and Blue, they're, they're out there in some other kind of scattered sites, but I can't put them up. But I am incredibly proud of you know those screenplays. It's just, uh, it would be really hard to watch The Wolfman, and I know it would be incredibly hard to watch 8mm. Um, what about watching something like X-Men or Batman versus Superman, which is uh, not a rewritten version of your script, but someone else writing a similar idea? Do you, do you have that? It's different. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind watching those. It, and it, and it's not to be a prima donna in any of these cases. I mean, 8mm, even to this day, would be kind of, I think, heartbreaking, even though there are amazing actors involved in it, etc. Um, and there would be things I would find interesting. No, those are so far from like my involvement that you just have a really specific opinion about them. And I look at other things and we'll get into some of that when we discuss William Friedkin. But there are other things that you were brought in to meet on either a book or uh, something that needed a rewrite or or an adaptation of something, whatever, that you have a really strong opinion on. And, and sometimes that shades your viewing of it, you know. Uh, yeah, I'll always have a really strong opinion about Batman versus Superman. But that, for me, is the thing. Like, I'm such a neurotic about writing that I have to be really, really convinced that I'm going to bring something meaningful to a project, regardless of whether it's something that I'm sitting down to write as a spec, whether it's something I'm adapting for someone or a rewrite of something. I've never been able to say, hey, just give me this job and now let me go figure it out. I really, really want to be engaged in the process in a meaningful way. I, I, I've luckily never had to take a job just as a job, you know, just taking it to try and, you know, pay the rent. I've always been able to be passionate about every project, which is great, but it also means that every one of the scripts that I mentioned that will never get made is kind of a little heartbreaking. But again, that's just the nature of the beast. Sure. What, what about uh, rewriting other scripts? You know, I, I, I see that you've done polishes that uh, you haven't been credited for on films like uh, Fight Club. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it's kind of common knowledge that I worked on Fight Club, but I hope that anyone who kind of knows that or has heard me talk about that, that that is definitely a case where Jim Yules is absolutely the screenwriter of Fight Club. Like he, he and Fincher broke the back of that story and, and made it what it was. And I just happened to be there, you know, kind of at the end, polishing and, and working some with Fincher and the actors. So so that was a case where I, I would have never deserved and I specifically didn't ask for credit on it. Not that my opinion or my asking or not asking ever has anything to do with the arbitration process that's overseen by the Writers Guild. The game was something that I was much more kind of involved in rewriting and that was a real learning experience going through the arbitration process, which I almost in a cliche now always say it's aptly named because it's an incredibly arbitrary process. But the arbitration process, I think, at least in the past, was somewhat a result of the Writers Guild trying to get the number of writers on scripts down to as few as possible so that it becomes a little more like an auteur kind of situation, I guess. And that to me isn't the ideal situation. I've heard of times when there were, and it may not happen as much nowadays, when there are three writers who all agreed, like we all deserve credit. And, and there have been cases where the writer's guild will still try and arbitrate it down to two writers. It's an incredibly complicated process, I mean to say, and, and, and admittedly, there's no 
easy answer to it. If you have a, if you have 30 writers or 12 writers who wrote on something over the years, someone has to sit there and and read all these drafts and decide who contributed what and what percentages and all this. So there's no way for it to be a perfect system. And it's obviously dealing with a labyrinth of writers uh, who each deserve and probably want credit on things. What is the one thing that you want people to know about what, what you do that they don't know, perhaps clearing up misconceptions or myths? I, I don't know. I mean, I think all writers are to a certain extent kind of miserable because you will leave a lot of you know, screenplays kind of in your wake that that will never see the light of day. I've read a lot of scripts written by friends of mine that I think are the best thing they've ever written that will never get made. Like I say, I think every writer wants to kind of recognize the suffering that they endure and at the same time not sound like they're a whiny little baby, um, you know, complaining about it because you are in many cases paid to write these screenplays. And I feel blessed to be, you know, working in my chosen profession and actually being paid for it occasionally. So I don't know about any misconception except that the IMDb page, I think especially for writers, isn't always an accurate depiction of what they've done. And at the end of the day, it really can look like a writer kind of stopped writing or gave up on, you know, writing interesting material or whatever. But any writer is going to be at the mercy of this is what got made. And here's the 10 other scripts they wrote that didn't get made. And it's particularly, I believe, true for people who are just writers and not writer slash directors, that it's an odd thing to be writing kind of smaller or or even larger size projects that are very personal or more of a kind of indie sensibility. And yet you're not going to be the one who kind of goes and shepherds it through the process. You know, I consider myself a screenwriter. I'm neurotic enough as is doing that. I don't think that I would survive trying to be a director nor have the, you know, maybe not the ego for it, but I've been blessed because, you know, I've had a couple movies made by, you know, especially by Fincher that if they didn't exist, I might be more driven to go and try and be more protective of stuff that I'm writing. So, Andrew, you uh, you flagged this in uh, our last segment, but which filmmaker have you uh, chosen to chat about on the show? Uh, it's Mr. Will- William Friedkin. Fantastic. What made you uh, decide to pick Friedkin? Well, I'm I'm a big fan of him as a filmmaker. I think clearly he's had a lot of influence upon you know my writing, and uh, you know I'm a huge fan of so many of his films. You know, I feel like he works in a often in in kind of areas of of dark material that I really appreciate. And it's funny kind of studying up to chat with you about this, how there's a particular kind of theme or genre that I talk about when it comes to films. I call it cinema of discomfort. And we can talk a little bit at length about that later. But it's funny to hear him talking about a similar concept in relation to some of his filmmaking. Uh, He's also someone that I've been lucky enough to have met with a few times over the years and it's always really interesting to chat with him when did you uh first become a fan i mean it must have been when i was pretty young and and i had seen french connection and and the thing is i grew up in the days before the vcr when you know you just got to see whatever was on television i do remember seeing things like dirty harry and french connection and uh, other films that 
that I'm certain were edited for television and had commercials mixed in. But I have very distinct memories of moments when I had seen some of his work. And, and one of the big ones, obviously, was French, The French Connection. It was, it was certainly, I was familiar with him from uh, French Connection, Exorcist, of course. Yeah. But it was remarkable going back through his films and seeing what a varied career he had. So this is a guy who grew up, you know, loved Citizen Kane, Wages of Fear, Diabolique, Psycho, made a documentary about uh, capital punishment called The People vs. Paul Crump in 62. Very intense film. And then his first feature film is Good Times, the Sonny and Cher film. Yeah, which I just watched again. it's, uh, It's an interesting... And then, yeah, the Harold Pinter play, The Birthday Party. It's such a strange opening to a career of, a, of the guy we know as, you know, the Exorcist director. Um, he's, I think he's a lot more eclectic than people, and certainly myself up until a few weeks ago, gave him credit for. Oh, absolutely. He, I mean, he has one of the most widely varied careers of anyone that I can think of. I mean, maybe Spielberg rivals him as far as like, or equals him as far as like genres he's worked in, but Friedkin's kind of touched upon it all, like, absolutely. It was interesting seeing Birthday Party which is adaptation of a play set in a single location, and The Boys in the Band yep. from 1970, uh, you know, also based on a play, also set in a single location. And realizing that he is, like, there were sort of two distinct shades to, to his directing, as far as I could tell. There was, if he had a, a very high-concept film like French Connection or Sorcerer or Exorcist, he would shoot it in this very sort of verite, almost Altman-esque style. And if he had to be in a single room, he'd really play with the dynamics of that. And you get these incredibly interesting shots and crash zooms and focus tricks. And just the way he, he looks at the material is so interesting. He's got such a, a keen eye for, for how to adapt a script, I think. I agree. I mean, he moves the camera a lot in Boys in the Band and keeps it, you know, really kind of visually interesting more than I expected. I haven't seen it as recently, but I think the birthday party is a little less kind of moving around. But it's incredibly interesting to see somebody have to keep a play that's being filmed interesting. And and he does it. I mean, that's for sure. And one other thing I want to make sure we do touch on is that, yeah, knowing that he came from documentary, it's pretty incredible what he's done with the camera in French Connection, especially having seen, you know, good times in the birthday party and Minsky's, etc. But I'm, I just want to make sure we do touch upon the idea of cameramen that actually are doing handheld stuff versus cameramen who are camera persons who are, I'm going to make this kind of herky jerky so this static scene stays interesting, which drives me insane. And like once I notice it on certain movies or shows, I can't watch the show anymore. Whereas, you know, with the French Connection or whatever that's being done kind of verite or documentary style, actually holding the camera still, there's a little motion to it, but it, it's real as opposed to that fake kind of jiggle camera that drives me nuts in so much stuff nowadays. There's that shot where with the car raising, revealing Popeye's forlorn expression, which is one of my favorite shots ever, that he's really got that car chase. I know everyone talks about it, but there's a reason everyone talks about it. Is rewatching yeah. it the other day. It was just, it was somehow better than I remembered it. It's one of the most extraordinary sequences in all of cinema history. It, it is amazing, yeah. He writes at length about so much of this stuff in, in his book, The Freaking Connection. And, you know, like I say, I've had a few meetings with him, which was great for me being such a fan of his. And he's not 
just one of the best filmmakers. He's one of the best storytellers kind of in person, like especially sitting and chatting with someone like that. You have so many questions about these classic films. And for me, so many of my questions were about cruising, which we'll get to. But I definitely recommend when it comes to anyone who's kind of coming to this stuff with new eyes, which it's hard to believe because for me, these are such important films. But I also realized that there are people who are younger catching up to some of the things that I think are essential. But for anybody who's wanting to educate themselves, you know, for any film student who's out there, like definitely his book is such a perfect kind of complement to watching The Exorcist, French Connection, et cetera, et cetera. There's really interesting stories behind so much of it. There's that one, two, three hit in a row where he goes from French Connection to Exorcist to Sorcerer is just one of the best runs I've ever seen. Just Touching on uh, The Exorcist, I I think one of the things that makes it so terrifying and effective is that it is a drama. He directs it like a drama. And so he's not doing the standard horror film stuff. And when you get to the horror, because he sucked you in with all the human drama, I think that's one of the reasons it's so incredibly terrifying. Yeah, I mean, it's literally, I think, 45 minutes before... She comes down to the party and something is clearly wrong. And even then, it's still within the realm of kind of medical. It was either 45 minutes or 50 minutes in where the bed is jumping, you know. And then you're like, oh, okay. Now, he says, you know, that he had seen, you know, Psycho like 30 times and had grown adept at terrifying people by when he was younger, telling girls stories that would scare them until they would be in tears. And he references at least a few places how Psycho was such an inspiration, not just Psycho, obviously, but all of Hitchcock. And Psycho is another perfect example of one that bides its time in the beginning and then kind of lulls you into complacency. You know, The Exorcist, having rewatched some of it last night, it's so profoundly sad and disturbing in its first hour or so. I love that it takes its time the way that it does. I think that Sorcerer does the same thing, kind of establishing, 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 which I think nowadays people would be trying to push, push, push to get all of that within the first 10 pages. You know, there's action stuff in French Connection from from the get go, you know, a foot chase, etc. But even then, there's a 10 minute stakeout. And, and I love that kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff I was trying to do in the screenplay, at least for eight millimeter, where It's like, what's it like to be on a stakeout? And if you want to see it portrayed in a film, there's no better stakeout than the French Connection as far as the yawn of it all. And like, how long do I have to sit in this car and where am I going to go fucking piss, you know? And like, The Exorcist is an incredible slow burn. And the medical stuff, as he points out in his book, is for many people the scariest part of the entire movie. And it comes in that first section, you know, the tests that are done on her, trying to diagnose her. So you mentioned Cruising was such an influential film for you. Could you talk a little bit about that? I just watched it for the first time, and we can talk about how it's dated, but I really was astonished at how good it was and how interesting and uh, nuanced it was. Yeah. Look, here's the thing that I also want to say. Like, I watched Good Times. I enjoyed it. I love Sonny Bono. I love Cher. The birthday party, the boys in the band, like they were giving him this whole reputation of being, I think he says it, artsy fartsy, you know, director. You know, then he he really did, pun I guess intended, switch gears with the French Connection. Um, The Exorcist, again, was a big genre change in direction. 
but they were squarely kind of bigger budget mainstream motion pictures from the studio system. And it's funny to me how nowadays part of it is because they're classics, but French Connection, The Exorcist are more like kind of art films comparatively to what gets made in cinemas nowadays. A lot of drama, a lot of truly broken and complex and more morally ambiguous characters like in The French Connection are or on television, you know, where drama kind of resides, because you can obviously draw a straight line from the French Connection to The Shield and even Breaking Bad. And it is interesting to see how their artistic merits are just as strong as their mainstream, let's make a fuckload of money merits. And it is incredible to see someone who had the French Connection, The Exorcist, Sorcerer, which admittedly was not a big success financially, but is hopefully, and I think potentially, being discovered more and more by people. There was a really recent, beautiful, new Blu-ray version that came out. The Brinks job was in there, cruising and Deal of the Century to Live and Die in L.A. I mean, that's a pretty amazing run, looking across not just those two or three films, but those five or six. Cruising, for me, is one where I totally get why it's controversial, and I don't dismiss any of that. But, weirdly for me, the the story behind me seeing cruising for the first time was, and I'll try and get through this really quickly. When I went to Penn State, it wasn't like everybody had a VCR in their dorm room. And there was this one little place called Nickelodeon. It was a store where you would go in and you could rent a little room and it could be two people or six people or whatever. And they would put a tape in the VCR and you were just watching whatever's in booth number five or booth number eight. You know, and so obviously it was a place for people to just go probably make out, have sex, whatever. But I remember going with my friend John Silberg and we were trying to decide what to see. I had never seen Cruising. So we said, you know, pop that in. We went into our little booth and watched Cruising alone in this dark, like shag carpeted weird booth with a TV that was probably 13 inches in diameter. It was a really interesting first way of seeing it. And he was the same person that introduced me to Midnight Cowboy, which is my favorite movie. I'll always be indebted to him. Cruising to me, like the controversy of it, acknowledging that people may watch it and not it may not be their favorite film. The, the stuff that he's doing with subliminal single and, and double frames that are cut in to the murders, for example. And, and I don't want to kind of ruin it for anyone, but the idea that based on the real case might have been more than one killer. So it was a film that for my birthday recently, I made a bunch of people who are fellow film nerds watch it on my birthday. And we are all commenting on how you're not sure was this guy the same killer as the second killing, you know, then doing a little research, Friedkin specifically chose different actors so that there was a sense that there might be two or even three killers because, spoiler alert, the ending of Cruising is an incredibly interesting ending to me because, and I think that you can tell me having seen it for the first time yourself, it seems to point to the fact that perhaps the Pacino character is a murderer as well. Did you get that? That Yes, definitely. So can I ask you really quickly, because I got to obsess on Cruising for two seconds. Did you watch it on DVD, obviously, or Blu-ray? Yeah, uh, DVD. Okay. So I had this long-running, I'll call it an argument or disagreement or confusion about, I remember seeing Cruising for the first time. I remember watching the very last shot, and again, sorry, everyone, spoiler alert, of Pacino looking into the mirror 
you know, while she's trying on his garb of his glasses and, and leather jacket. And there was a sound cue that to me was always attached throughout the film to the murderer. And it comes over the soundtrack while he's staring at himself into the mirror. Now, if you saw the DVD, although I don't know what mix you might have gotten in Australia, that sound cue is most likely missing. And I've had this discussion with Friedkin himself, and I thought I was crazy that I had imagined it. But I've watched the DVD, and when I made everyone watch it on my birthday, I immediately put in the VHS copy that I have of it and played the exact same scene, and the sound cue is there on the VHS tape. Wow. And again, spoiler alert, it's the jangling of either the keys or the chains on the belt of the killer, and every time you've heard it before. So I think without it, you would have gotten the same sense that he might have been the person who killed the last victim, but I think it's so much stronger and can be so more easily understood with that sound cue in it. A lot of people will see it and have no idea that that sound cue existed. It's always been incredibly interesting to me and especially discovering like that I wasn't crazy. It was there. That's fascinating. Um, and I'm going to go back and check my copy to see if, uh, if I missed it or it wasn't there. So uh, like post cruising, he gets into a very, what I would describe as an eighties period of his career deal of the Mm -hmm. century with Chevy Chase to live and die in LA. Are you up on that post-cruising career? Yeah, I was. Deal of the century, it's been a long time. And you're absolutely right that that cast is a very 80s cast, obviously. And some of my favorites, because I love Chevy Chase. To live and die in LA, I happened to be in film school at the time. So I remember going to see this movie that was being sold as having a big car chase in it from the creator of The French Connection. I really love to live and die in LA. I think it's the best Michael Mann movie that wasn't made by Michael Mann. And I think that a lot of people looking at it from a squinty distance just assume it's a Michael Mann movie. I've seen Rampage. I've seen The Guardian, although it's been a long time. You know, I've always kind of made the effort to see anything that he's done. And I really dig um, to live and die in LA. And I love that it is such a kind of artifact of its time. I think even besides the car chase, which is incredible, the montage of like making the counterfeit money is incredibly artfully done and and interesting. I don't think there's anybody who's seen that movie who doesn't assume, you know, however many years later, however long a time has passed that, that part of making counterfeit money is throwing a bunch of poker chips with the money into a dryer and letting it like, you know, kind of age or, or, you know, kind of give it a little realistic feel to the counterfeit bills. It's a, I think it's a cool film. And I mean, obviously it, it's really the first time Willem Dafoe's in anything. I mean, it's got so much interesting stuff going on. He goes on to make some uh, interesting films after that rampage, the guardian blue chips Jade, which is quite notorious and uh, certainly lived, I don't know, up or down to its reputation, but it certainly matched its reputation. I I just wanted to jump in and talk a little bit about 12 Angry Men, which is a film I avoided for so long because I love the original so much. It's one of my favorites. And I sort of had this this weird thing knowing there was a remake out there, uh, Mm -hmm. even before I realized it was Friedkin. I really didn't want to watch it. And I did for this. And I was astonished at at how good it was. Um, I, I think some of the Casting is a little too clever. Having a, a Louis Farrakhan type being racist isn't so much subversive as it is incomprehensible. But going back to like his first film, People vs. Paul Crump, he talked about how he thought Crump was innocent at the time he made the film. And then later he said that he came to believe he might be guilty. Right. Because 12 Angry Men is about the, about process and reasonable doubt. And the kid is possibly guilty 
but still deserved a better shot at life. I wondered if there was like something of his own life he was bringing to that. I don't know. I mean, it, it is interesting because you're right that I think people tend to fixate on that certain period, the kind of heyday of his films. And a lot of it is informed by listening to his, you know, I was listening to the audible version. It's interesting because he reads his autobiography and his autobiography is as much kind of a almost an apology or a confession in certain instances as it is, you know, kind of interesting film history. But I mean, even like I say, to live and die in L.A., it has a really interesting turn that comes as far as main characters towards the end. It's got incredibly innovative or at least still incredibly adept chase sequence, you know, technique. Same goes for Jade, even, and which is the one that he says is the chase that he's proudest of. Like I say, there's a there's there there's the sublimi- subliminal kind of flash frames in The Exorcist, especially in the dream sequence earlier on. But. The same kind of experimenting with technique and and single frames, like we mentioned in Cruising. 12 Angry Men, he was just, I think, jazzed to have such a fucking amazing cast, you know, of great actors, including Gandolfini, etc. The Hunted was one where I had met and chatted with him about it and and ultimately didn't work on it because I partly I never worked on anything for him because I always didn't want to disappoint him and that's my fear of working on anything but the hunted like i have great affection for that film and the knife fight sequences are always really fascinating to me and, and incredibly interestingly done so i think that you know even like the stuff that he was doing later and i was lucky enough to, to have seen the opera that he did here i'm going to mispronounce it i know but el el tritico where he did two of the operas and woody allen did the third and and he says in his book that he, he feels like his most innovative stuff that he's ever done, ever in his entire career, was done for the opera. He's never given up on kind of innovating and using inspiration and technique, you know, kind of in interesting ways. So I don't know whether he's looking back with any sort of like questioning or regret. And certainly if he is, I don't know why, except for, like I say, He's very open about, you know, almost apologetically talking about what he was must have been like at the height of his career when he could do no wrong. And he admits that in his own mind, he could do no wrong to a certain extent. Well, certainly, I mean, he always brought something great, something interesting to those films, even the ones like we breezed past those sort of 90s films, there's always something interesting going on. So he sort of came back in the 2000s with like rules of engagement, you know, Samuel L. Jackson, and Tommy Lee Jones, very big film the hunted the ones that really astonished me are bug in 2006 and killer joe in 2011 sort of his last two big films which i would rank up there with some of his best i think they're incredibly interesting and surprising films that feel like the work of a young director trying to prove himself i I just think it's interesting that he's going back to his roots in a way because like you were saying you have someone who started with the birthday party and the boys in the band and then he's found this real kismet with the playwright tracy Letts. and so those two films which get you know kind of mixed reaction i think especially killer joe because they're so weirdly super violent and darkly humorous at the same time again especially killer joe it's interesting he's gone back to taking a very confined movie and breathing life into it, you know, making a play into a movie, you know, isn't always the easiest thing. It is interesting, too, that that's kind of the overall trend in 
filmmaking today, I mean, the only way that The French Connection and or The Exorcist would get made nowadays outside of television, in my opinion, is if they were under $5 million budgets, which which you couldn't really do. The things you can do under $5 million are these one and two location, you know, maybe three location movies. So he's taking those one or two or three room movies and, and finding the most kind of rich material from this fruitful relationship he's had with Tracy and making the most of the freedom that you get to make a movie by not having a budget that nobody will put up. You know, it's rough these days to get the money to make any movie. So it is interesting that he's in a way going back to his roots. There are roots that I think a lot of people don't know exist. Yeah. Uh, my, I think my last question is something I've noticed in his films. I want to get your take on around the time I got to bug, I realized that there was a theme in his films. In Bug, Michael Shannon is running from the army. The hunted Benicio Del Toro is running from the army. Samuel L. Jackson in Rules of Engagement. But more than the army, running from an institution is a big backstory in his films. Uh, the Church and the Exorcist, the Mafia and Sorcerer. He, he often tells stories about smaller conflicts with this bigger institution looming in the background. I wonder if that's something that uh, is of particular interest to him, if you noticed anything like that. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I didn't really think about it that way thematically. For me, the thread that runs through so many of his movies is, again, it's, it's something I talked a little bit at, at length about because of Seven and because of the ending of Seven. But I mean, I think he may dwell in kind of dark material, but he deals with endings that are appropriate to the films. The Exorcist, and he goes into it at great length in his autobiography, is a happy ending in a way and a very hopeful ending, um, especially depending on how you interpret the very last few moments before, spoiler alert, a certain somebody goes out the window. But my thread, like I say, would be related to the cinema of discomfort, that here's a guy who recognized as i do that i love going into the safety of a theater and experiencing vicariously on the screen something horrible horribly dark frightening and he talks about that in his book a little bit about the, the fact that he learned very early on that audiences like that experiencing kind of vicarious fear in the safety of the darkness it certainly fulfills my cinema of discomfort thing is all these places I want to go in movies like Dirty Harry and The French Connection and The Exorcist that I would never want to experience in real life, obviously. That escapist kind of experience of terror is clearly found in horror movies, if you want to call The Exorcist a horror movie. But it's also, for me, just as strongly found in things like The French Connection, Sorcerer, even to live and die in L.A., et cetera. And that's one of the things I think that drew me to Friedkin and certainly influenced me was the darkness of his material and, and that kind of embracing not just the darkness, but the ambiguity of, you know, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. You do see less of it nowadays, or, or if you do see it, it's on television, you know, as opposed to maybe in independent cinema. But yeah, I mean, as far as like going up against giant institutions, I think that if if you see that thread in his filmmaking, it's probably maybe a result of going up against the institutions of trying to make interesting movies in a studio system that I think people look back upon with candy colored lenses. I think I think people think that, you know, Warren Beatty and Spielberg and Scorsese and Friedkin were just going in and, and the studios were saying, go make whatever you want and here's the money. 
But every single one of those battles was to get these movies made were actual battles. And even when they had finished shooting them to preserve their kind of integrity was it was a fight. So if you feel like he has a reaction to institutions, you know, it might have something to do with trying to make art within an institution, which is basically what I think he and and certain filmmakers you know, have managed to do over the years. Well, on that note, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure yeah, to chat. No problem. I hope you can use some of this idiocy. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, thank you. And I'm back with Rochelle. Uh, that was Andrew Kevin Walker on William Friedkin. What are your thoughts on his films? Uh, Friedkin's not Andrew's, but we can talk about Andrew's if you like. <laughs> Look, I, um, I really appreciated the opportunity to delve a bit into Friedkin because, you know, there was a brief period in the 70s when he was the most powerful filmmaker in Hollywood. Mm. And then he kind of went off the boil a bit. Some people say it was the exorcist curse. Mm. He's really interesting in that his characters are often morally ambiguous and so many of his films that I watched, I noticed there's this kind of open-ended or abrupt conclusion. So, you know, he's not a filmmaker who insists that you like everybody that he's, he's working with or that his stories are necessarily really straightforward. He takes his time. You know, he made two really seminal um, gay films, and yeah. both of which were really criticised by certain, you know, gay activist groups, but are kind of being reclaimed into the story of gay representation in, in Hollywood, of course, mm. um, The Boys in the Band in 1970 and Cruising in 1980. And I really loved the chance to watch The Boys in the Band because mm. I think Pauline Kael described it as being like the gay, the women, you know, oh, yeah, from the yeah. women. Well, you know, there's just all these gay men at a birthday party being complete bitches to each other. <laughs> it's it's sort of the witty, catty repartee, the intense self-loathing and self-hatred. Mm. It's kind of interesting when you think that this was 1970 and this was Hollywood trying to deal with stuff and Friedkin went there. Yeah. I, th- I think it's it, it was it was interesting. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it was... Uh... It was certainly eye-opening to go back through all of his films. Like, you know, I say that every month. But with Friedkin in particular, you know, you've got an idea about a filmmaker based partly on the films of theirs you've seen, which are usually the big ones, and also partly by reputation. Like, I've seen Exorcist a number of times, but its reputation is all-consuming, and it sort of overwhelms my own reading of the film where you remember those canonised moments, which are actually in the minority. It's a far more... I mean, those moments are terrifying and brilliant, but... Slow and considered, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. it's like a drama that has a couple of moments of horror, which is why it works. And this this career that is incredibly varied and shaded Mm. when you see it all in its totality. You know, he made a documentary about Barbara Streisand, you know, making a Broadway album, and he made a horror film, and he did a Harold Pinter play, and he, he was such a more interesting director than I think... His reputation, well, his reputation is for like three or four of the greatest films ever. You know, mm. you've got French Connection, Sorcerer, Exorcist. And, you know, I'm sure he can live with his reputation being, I made three of the greatest films ever basically in a row. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think he's even more interesting than that. I think, you know, seeing even the films that don't work and seeing him direct straight to, you know, TV movies that are just excruciating to watch like some really like degrading and you stuff. watched them all too, I watched didn't them you? all yeah <laughs> so it was yeah fascinating to watch him sort of bounce around all yeah. these different films and then really get it get it back together in sort of the 2000s and 
uh, with films like Bug, which was incredible. And yeah, yeah it's yeah. it was really fascinating to watch all these films and yeah, chat to Andrew about it, chat to yeah, you about it. Yeah, yeah. Did you love the French Connection? Oh yeah, I was. Uh, I watched first watched on a plane uh, a couple of years ago uh, after at the end of a long haul international flight. So it was much more enjoyable this time. Uh, I think that's one that will probably improve with every viewing. Yeah, this was my first time to see it, and I ah, can right. see why it's justly uh, recognised for its thrilling um, chase scenes through the grimy streets yeah. of New York, and um, it was kind of racist and nihilistic and mm. you know grimy but it holds up as sort of a you know one of those police work films that is probably been copied a million times but Friedkin sort of did it for mm. the first time totally so that's William Friedkin we encourage you to go out and uh, track down as many of his films as you can except for maybe some of these weird <laughs> 80s ones um all right well I guess we'll see the rest of you next month see you later